0: Dementia in Practice is recorded and produced in multiple locations. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which we meet. We pay our respect to elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples, their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia.
1: Exercise in the daytime and light in the daytime cognitive stimulation and social connectedness in the daytime, we know that they have a positive impact on sleep.
2: Hi, it's Hilton Coppy with you again and welcome back to Dementia in Practice, the podcast that's made by GPs, for GPs and for other health professionals who want to learn more about dementia. As always, my friends Marita Long and Steph Daly from Dementia Training Australia are with me. And Marita, I hope you've had a better night's sleep Since we last spoke,
3: yeah, well, I set my alarm and got myself up at my prescribed wake time and feeling much better.
2: Good on you. So, this is part two of our discussion on sleep with clinical neuropsychologist Professor Sharon Naismith. And she's going to talk a little about the impact of sleep on people living with dementia. The Lancet did the study in 2020 or the report on uh, 12 modifiable risk factors for dementia. Obesity was one of those. There's the other, you know, the usual smoking, depression, physical, lack of physical activity, you know, the the full house of things that in general practice we focus on for a whole range of things, cardiovascular health, mental health, now for brain health as well. But it was very interesting to me that sleep wasn't one of those 12, Mm. um, despite the fact that we're having this conversation about uh, sleep being a risk factor for cognitive decline. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why it wasn't in the Lancet and Mm. uh, in what ways is sleep a risk factor for cognitive decline?
1: Yeah, look, it's a, it's a great question. I have had the opportunity to ask the first author, Jill Livingston, you know, in a couple of uh, conferences where she's presented that um, uh, data leading to the Lancet Commission report, and I've asked her more directly about sleep. Um, I think there's a couple of key reasons. I think one... Um, Certainly the evidence that they reviewed, they said, was inconclusive, and I think there's a few reasons, you know, underpinning that. One is that sleep is generally just kind of lumped into one thing. You have sleep problems. Well, what does that mean? Um, you have insomnia. You have obstructive sleep apnea. Um, you have circadian change. You have unrefreshing sleep. You have REM sleep behaviour disorder. You know, it's never characterised in enough detail. Um, And so certainly when some of those studies have been put together, it's just been regarded as generally, you know, sleep without that level of emphasis. Um, And equally, a lot of the studies that have looked at sleep have not adequately controlled for key confounds that might have actually affected someone's risk for dementia. Um, So there's been, since the Lancet Commission was published, there's actually been a really great study um, from the Whitehall um, data that actually examined um, nearly 8,000 people and showed that, you know, sleep does, sleep disturbance in midlife does increase the risk of dementia. So certainly since the Lancet Commission, there's been some new data that's been better controlled and characterised sleep fairly well, and that actually has been supportive of that link. I think the other big problem, Hilton, is we actually don't have enough trials in sleep, clinical, high quality clinical trials, um, and we really desperately need those. We need to be able to demonstrate that, okay, it's a risk factor, but what happens if we treat it? Can we actually slow um, cognitive decline? Now, that's not just a problem that's unique to sleep, of course, because there's many other areas, you know, where there are lack of good modifiable um, a targeting modifiable risk factors depression is another one you know we don't have great trials looking at people longitudinally that have targeted depression and then said okay if you treated it it slows cognitive decline um and so i think you know the other thing is there's a focus on kind of short and long sleep duration certainly in my opinion the evidence around short sleep duration is getting much stronger now that Whitehall study did show that people that with both strong uh, sorry short and long sleep duration had an increased risk of dementia. But there was a recent study that was published last year that showed that people with short sleep duration had increased levels of amyloid in their brain, and that was in, in midlife as well. That was in you know, nearly 4,500 people. So I think the quality of the evidence has definitely got stronger since the Lancet Commission report. Um, I should hope that by the time there's another revision of that, um, we'll have a bit more of the evidence. um, But I'm not so hopeful that we'll have enough clinical trial data at that point. So we need to keep on working on that one.
2: So let's break it down then, Sharon, the different uh, type of sleep disturbances that affect cognitive functions. You mentioned short sleep duration as someone who's not a researcher like me. What does that mean?
1: Yeah, so it's typically under six hours a night. Um, is considered short sleep duration. It varies a little bit between the studies, but typically seven to eight hours is kind of the sweet spot that we should be having in midlife. Um, and, you know, excessively long sleep duration could be due to a range of factors and other medical comorbidities, et cetera, is there as well. So there's a lot to untangle, but it's the short sleep duration, you know, that where there does seem to be a bit more of this consistent evidence emerging. So, yeah, in and of itself, it's not a sleep disorder, <laughs> of course. It's not a formal sleep disorder, but having that short sleep duration does seem to pose greater risk.
2: And are there things that can be done to help people? If if I see a patient who tells me they're only sleeping five hours a night, I guess the question, why are they only sleeping five hours a night? Is it because they work till midnight and have to get up at six in the morning for something else? Like yeah. what are the things that uh, are the the causes of short sleep duration and what can be done about those
1: i think that what you, question you just posed is pivotal because of course there are some people that say they only ever needed four or five hours sleep a night you know many famous people And we know of only need that short sleep. But I think if there's a change in someone's sleep pattern to start to be only needing four or five hours, that's more indicative of, you know, that there may be a problem there. And certainly when you hear of people that are, um, you know, burning the candle at both ends, um, sacrificing sleep for other um, commitments, then, you know, and, and they are only sleeping five or six hours a night. I guess if it were me, I'd be looking into how do I change that and how do I prioritise sleep in my life? You know, what are the other things that can be altered in the environment to maximise that sleep time? Because often you'll find that people say they're not functioning very well. They'll say that they're getting around in the daytime still pretty tired or they're making mistakes or, you know, (laughs) even having car accidents or, you know, that their memory's not great or not functioning well in the workplace. So I think it's also how does it impact on that daytime functioning as well.
2: Which can be a motivating factor to help them with some change in yeah
1: in, yeah in that's right.
2: And if we add in the possibility that that uh, sleep routine may lead to an increased risk of dementia, then that might be a further motivating.
1: That's right. Um, it's astounding how many people I've spoken to that start to understand you know the science and the evidence that's accumulating now um, for sleep being a risk factor for dementia that do actually change their practices when they realize it's it's not something that we can neglect like we used to we used to kind of go oh we'll just catch up you know on that you can catch up on sleep a little bit but certainly chronic sleep deprivation we know not only from basic science but from these big epidemiological studies that this more chronic sleep deprivation is a problem you know for the health of the brain in the long term
2: So we'll come back to Sharon in a moment, but um, Marita, Sharon spoke about the importance of managing depression as well with respect to sleep and dementia. Just wondering what your thoughts are around medication use in helping people with depression, older people with depression, and the the way that. that treating the depression may improve their sleep and therefore improve their cognitive functioning.
3: Mm. And so that's a big one, isn't it? Because thinking about all this poor sleep is going to bring about poor cognition and poor cognition is going to bring about poor sleep. And then you put depression into the mix and it does start to get quite complicated. So I guess the important thing is that we are very cautious about adding medications always, particularly into our elderly um, patients, and then even more so if we're looking at someone who's living with dementia because we're always talking about getting rid of any medications that could be impacting on their cognition. But I guess what we need to be doing is looking at the person as a whole you know there's no one size fits all we always talk about the fact that everyone's experience is very different and and it's very nuanced and again it's going to be the same so While we don't want to say a blanket rule um, to no medications, there are patients that I've seen really benefit from metazapine where there's depression and some sleep disturbance. So sometimes starting a low dose of metazapine works well for sleep. The higher end of metazapine works well for depression. So it's sometimes looking at starting a low dose and seeing if we do get any benefit, perhaps creeping it up a little bit if there's depression as a more prominent feature and then seeing how we we how things turn out, remembering always to put a time frame on reviewing the medication because if it's not helping, we've always got to remember to stop the medication. But it's something that yeah, I've seen used quite commonly in this sort of situation with good effect. Yeah.
2: Steph, I know you're super interested in the idea of brain health and doing uh, brain health checks for people in midlife as a way of reducing their risk of, developing dementia, I was just wondering, with the information that Sharon was talking about, how might that change your approach to helping people in midlife around sleep and reducing their risk for developing a dementia?
0: I guess what's really fascinating about all this stuff is it's such it all comes back to kind of motivational interviewing doesn't it and how to get people to understand you know all of these practices that we're talking about as really self-care and with sleep it's um, again thinking about all of those uh, sleep hygiene practices and we talk about them all the time and I talk about mindfulness all the time with with um, people who come to see me with poor sleep but it's really how to how do we motivate people to recognize the importance of Of looking after our bodies, I guess. And in looking after our bodies, we're also looking after our minds and our hearts. And, you know, all of this, as I said before, this is without pharmacological intervention. And I think, you know, some of the other episodes we're going to talk in in terms of social prescribing, I guess the role of the general practitioner uh, or as the doctor is we've got to get away from this feeling that everything we do involves giving somebody a prescription and a lot of it is health advice and health promotion Um, but giving people sort of adequate education around the reasons why we're giving that information and and, you know as Marita said we often see people in their 40s and 50s who are experiencing sleep disturbance because that's a stressful time in life you know I I get woken up by my kids but then there's you know things that go through my mind in, in the night and you know trying to get people to understand the impact of that and how to mitigate that um, is really what we should be doing in in general practice.
2: So we just add that to the long list of other things that we should be doing or could be doing. But I guess at least if we've got the knowledge, we can make the choice about whether we choose to talk about sleep with this particular person or exercise or alcohol. We've got to target it to where the person is at and, and how to motivate them well. But let's hear a little more about what Sharon had to say about sleep for people living with dementia. We've spoken during our previous episodes, Sharon, with uh, a number of people who are living with dementia. And mm. one of the things that they have all spoken about is a loss of a sense of identity and also like the sense of purpose in their life. Mm. I'm just wondering if daytime napping or going to bed early can sometimes be a factor of just being bored or not having much to do during the day. And what are your thoughts about giving people meaningful activity that they can engage with that makes them want to be awake rather than bored and falling asleep in front of daytime television.
1: Yeah, look, I find this a fascinating area. I think it's so interesting. You know, we put so much effort into this kind of thing with children, you know, to help their brains grow and to promote that neuroplasticity. And then when we get older, it's kind of neglected again. So, you know, I I agree wholeheartedly. It's important that we give older people and people living with dementia variety so that they do have that balance um, in their lives, that they do have that meaning, Physical activity, cognitive activity, you know, new things that they may want to engage in, but also social connectedness as well. So I think, you know, this is another really interesting area that's emerging as being really important for the brain and helping people um, have retained that sense of identity, that sense of purpose. Um, And certainly, you know you're correct, and that many people may well think, I'll just go to bed because there's nothing else to do. And unfortunately, that in turn sets up these really poor sleep cycles because they're laying in bed for really long periods of time, you know, 10 or 12 hours or so, they may be laying in bed, not actually sleeping. So their relationship with their bed starts to become kind of hampered (laughs) Um, you know, by this, and the, the bed is not seen as a place to sleep. It's a place to rest or where you go when you're bored. So you end up getting, I guess, what we call poor sleep efficiency. So the time you're spending in your bed, you're not actually spending much of it asleep. And that's the kind of thing that we might then target when we use sleep hygiene or, you know, cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia would target that time that you're spending in bed and how efficiently is it being used and actually is the kind of core basis um, of things like sleep restriction therapy. So we're making sure that of the time you're in your bed, you're spending most of bit of
2: sleep. I would imagine that many of the older people who come to see me with requests for sleeping tablets. It's because they're spending a long time in bed and not sleeping most of that time.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you know the sleeping tablets are so interesting, aren't they? You know, people do want a magic pill. But the data around the pills is, you know, really not great. Um, As you know, you know, the benzodiazepines we shouldn't be using for older people beyond a couple of weeks and certainly not good for older people in terms of falls, confusion, et cetera, Um, And I would certainly encourage people might try melatonin. Um, There's, you know, an an emerging evidence base around that. There are some benefits for cognition. But before I tried any of those, I would try the simple behavioural techniques first. So certainly keeping the, you know, the lights dim from 6pm onwards. I know to some extent you need to have some light. (laughs) You know, to get around in the evening to prevent falls and things, but certainly having bright lights in the evening, even those coming from the TV, can severely impact on the ability of the brain to just release that melatonin um, and to to fall asleep well.
2: What about computers and screens in that uh, phase of the day?
1: Um, Look, computers and screens can have an impact as well. Um, I, I think to some extent it can be individual. Again, I would encourage people to try eliminating those if they're finding that they're having difficulty falling asleep because, of course, they do emit light. You can get other things that stop, um, you know, the emission of light, et cetera, on the computers. Um, but, you know, personally, I use my computer in the evening, but I have no problem falling asleep. <laughs> but the minute I do, I'll be starting to look at that as one of the first things that goes
2: yeah, I'm such a sensitive soul, Sharon, that I can't use a computer after dinner yeah. because I can't sleep and I just, I know that for sure. Yeah,
1: right. Well, you know, similar things like caffeine and alcohol are the same. Yeah. You know, some, some people say that as they get older, they can't have caffeine after four o'clock or at all, or it affects their sleep. Um, I'm one of those people, but... <laughs> I know plenty of other people that can still have it. So I do think that it's a, a, a bit of kind of trial and error of looking at all of the different factors that can impact sleep and then eliminating them one at a time and seeing if it makes any difference.
2: We have had a previous episode about the impact of the environment on people with dementia and I've been thinking as we've been talking about for those people with dementia living in residential aged care how could attention to that environment you've, you've mentioned some things already if you had a hit list of the top things that could be done in residential aged care what the things that could be changed to help people with sleep and therefore cognition and maybe behaviour you know, the sundowning, that's such a big issue. Uh, Are there environmental things in residential aged care that might be helpful?
1: There are a whole range of things that we could do in residential aged care. First of all, I guess, just educating staff more um, and and family and carers too on, um, you know, the kinds of changes in sleep, you know, that we might be seeing and and looking out for for that so we know when is good time to get medical advice things like sleep apnea, for example you know we can do medical tests for those as you know so I think it's important that people are just aware of sleep disorders but on an environmental level um, certainly lots of things we can do from a light perspective also trying to minimize noise and clutter and you know massive environmental kind of distractions and things in the evening um, can be good or the early afternoon if people are experiencing sundowning, that agitation or um, irritability that they may get in the evening. Exercise in the daytime and light in the daytime cognitive stimulation and social connectedness in the daytime are all really important um, just to prevent that boredom as we've discussed but also because we know that they have a positive impact on sleep um, and really help to um, give us more of that nice deep slow wave sleep um, in the evenings Um, and you know having some degree of regularity um, to activities is, is good as well having some degree of structure but not necessarily on the bedtime itself so the rise time Is is definitely more important. Giving older people in those environments um, the opportunity for bright light and exercise in the morning um, is really critical. You know, going a step further, there's other things like um, diet is important too. So not giving older people really heavy meals at lunchtime and then closing the curtains so that they fall asleep. (laughs) So you know, we want to make sure that that you know the diet doesn't really encourage that. That um, post-lunch dip, um, and that people are still, you know, keeping active as much as they can at those parts of the day. Um, so, yeah, that'd be the kind of the key things I'd look out for in that setting.
2: Just one last question, because I'm intrigued by light. Do they have to actually be outside or can light from the fluoro tubes, or do they need to be special? internal lights to get that benefit or do they need to be outside in direct sunlight to get the benefit
1: yeah look the direct sunlight is by far always the best but the internal lights and you can get you know special some facilities do have special facilities that really um, promote you know the type of light as well so you can get specialized light any light is better than no light (laughs) Um, but certainly getting that bright light early in the morning is one of the best things that you can do. Um, so the brighter the better and sunlight is always the best and and also encouraging people not to put on glasses at that time of day if they are going to go outside as well, yeah. sunglasses.
2: Again, so much material there. Sharon spoke a little about cognitive exercise and I know this is an area of interest for yours. I I was wondering what you were thinking while Sharon was talking about that and how that might be applied in the clinical setting.
0: Again, I think it's thinking about a person centered approach with this. There are specific programs that address um, sort of cognitive stimulation, which, you know, there is a model for that, um, which involves, you know, kind of group setting work. But, you know, if it can be just as simple as perhaps attending something like a choir where you, uh, you know, involved in singing, listening to music, you know, activating your brain in different ways. Again, it has to be something that the person is interested in doing. But Within residential aged care facilities, as well, I think diversifying, as um, Jason spoke about in in his episode, diversifying the types of activities that are offered to people that do involve different ways of engaging your brain, um, is you know really useful in fact I was talking about this with somebody the other day and you know there's no good just going out for a walk with somebody uh, perhaps with a support person and not talking to them and just saying oh that's your exercise for the day you know you should be you know perhaps if somebody's interested in photography maybe taking a camera or if they're interested in nature talking about the birds and the trees and you know actually engaging in some stimulating conversation that could be what cognitive stimulation is it, it can be a range of different different things.
2: We're going to talk about social prescribing in an episode later on in the season. Joining a choir or those kind of social activities are really valuable, as we'll hear. I just wonder, um, from listening to Sharon, particularly thinking about people who are perhaps already living with dementia, how might this information change your practice or what might you now do differently with the people that you care for who are living with dementia?
0: I guess two two takeaway things that I found really helpful in what she said was one take the pressure off the bedtime because you know that if you take that pressure away um then everybody's going to get less stressed about it and i think that's often what happens is everyone's getting worried about what time is this person going to go to bed and and are they going to get enough sleep so shifting the focus to again looking at the more positive things so let's talk about what happens in the morning when we get up in the morning and you know structuring the day so that you have some exercise and you do your you know interesting activities in the morning and focusing on avoiding boredom and that then maybe just makes it whole lot less stressful for everyone involved because the carer isn't trying to or the spouse or whoever isn't trying to you know force somebody to bed when they're just not ready for sleep but you're actually focusing on the parts of the day when you can you know encourage making a difference but in doing so actually making a difference to the quality of that person's life at the time because you know focusing on activities And, and I really resonate with that um part of the interview where she was talking about or I think you brought it up, the people who tend to sort of go take themselves off to bed just because of boredom really or maybe that's the initiating reason or because of apathy or whatever and then that in turn leads to poor sleep. So trying to educate around that and explain why it's so important to stay connected and have some cognitive stimulation and physical activity all of which um, can be done fairly you know simply even in residential aged care facilities. And and again, it takes that focus away from medication, which I think is, you know, invaluable.
2: I was just thinking as you were talking, Steph, about the carers of someone living with dementia and how sleep deprivation through the caring process, what impact do you imagine that might have, Marita, on like the well-being of the person with dementia, living with dementia, and the carer.
3: Mm. I remember with Dad actually, he had that sort of sundowning, and he would um, start to sort of get agitated, and Mum would try and shuffle him off to bed, and he'd go to bed and he'd have a have a nap actually, and then he would get up and get dressed because he thought he'd woken up. So he had really disturbed sleep, and then mum's time which was her time at night to kind of regather her strength and um, resilience to then get through the next day was totally gone you know and it was it was really really hard to try and balance out you know how we we're going to manage it so it, it is going to have its impact and I guess again being mindful of that and and looking at um, how we can put the support structures in place for the carers as well, not forgetting that they're going through this as well.
2: And their sleep's being affected and that might affect their capacity to function optimally.
0: Yeah. Perhaps that gives you like, um, you know, looking at – carer support that goes into homes if people are living in their own homes actually changing the time of day that that support is offered because Mm -hmm. perhaps an evening somebody going in in the evening to chat to the person who's struggling to sleep allowing the carer to have either their time to themselves or you know perhaps go to bed early would be more Mm. beneficial for that family than somebody rushing in earlier on in the day to you know help get someone washed and dressed or whatever like again thinking about tailoring it to the family and offering versatile supports might be might be a good option if that is even available I know it is one of my one of my um uh, clients does have some evening supports and that does allow the in that case relative to go home um, and spend time at home but yeah I think encouraging maybe families to ask about different sorts of options for them might be something we could do
3: yeah it's not just a nine to five issue
2: Yeah, and I think that was, for me, the take-home message was about individualising things, and it's not one-size-fits-all, both around so many of these things. Marita, I noticed you were taking some notes while Sharon was talking. What sort of thoughts came to your mind as you were listening to that?
3: Yeah, I was thinking, there goes my retirement of sleeping in every day, right? Got to get up early and get going. Look, I just think there is so much research going on out there, right? But we don't get access to this kind of knowledge, do we? We don't hear about this. We know sleep's important. We don't get to hear about how or how best to address it. So I'm just so thankful that we got to interview someone like Sharon and we've got this on the podcast and that people will get access to this information because it is clearly so important. And I guess my take home was too, was just thinking about rather than getting So panic struck when I start thinking about, oh my God, I do this, I do that. I have a cup of tea every night before I go to bed. My husband brings me in a cup of tea, and you know, it's part of my sleep ritual, but that works okay for me. And the minute it doesn't, then we have to think about it. I really love the um, information she gave, which was reaffirming about the benzos and having those conversations as tiring as they get with patients. It's really important to be honest with our patients and tell them that. This isn't a, a good way to go. But now we have some way of offering, you know, some alternatives, thinking about sleep restrictive therapy, encouraging getting up at the same time every day, getting out during the day, limiting your daytime nap. So I just think the information that Sharon has shared with us today is gold and really can help us all transform our practice and how we talk about sleep now with our patients. And patients like it when you can give them the whys and the hows. They just don't like it when you say, well, you've got to get a good night's sleep.
2: Because I said so.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so. I think it's really rich, all this information. I just think the listeners are going to really enjoy it. Mm. Yeah,
2: I I found it incredibly rich as well. And Steph, um, Sharon also mentioned the possibility of melatonin uh, to help for short-term sleep disturbance or as a short-term medication for sleep disturbance. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that.
0: It was interesting isn't it melatonin because i think she uh, sharon mentioned that some of the reasons behind the sleep disturbance is that there is a you know change in the amount of melatonin that's being released and and she also mentioned that trying to you know change the lighting can actually stimulate more melatonin and bring back that circadian rhythm so it kind of makes sense that using melatonin might help that but i think what we're probably lacking is some you know robust studies um, to really support that as evidence based medicine, but certainly if you 're looking at prescribing something, I do recommend melatonin as a trial sometimes just to see if that will help regulate somebody's sleep patterns in addition to doing all of those non pharmacological approaches and I think the 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 bottom line should be that if you haven't addressed those non pharmacological approaches, um those are the things to do first, and then if you still need some additional help, perhaps trying melatonin um is worthwhile, but you know, having it's now available over the counter here in Australia, and and I, I think lots of people are probably using it, you know, just uh, because they've bought it from the pharmacy. So perhaps also asking whether somebody is using that, and when you're when you're taking your history, is also important because you want to know any other over the counter meds that they may be taking for
2: sleep. As you were talking, it reminded me of when I was a kid. There used to be this TV show called The Phantom Agents, and one of the lines from The Phantom Agents was always remember a gun is a last resort and it's kind of like, you know, the drugs are the last resort, the prescriptions the last resort, we try all these other things first. So as I mentioned earlier, on the next Dementia in Practice episode, Marita, you found out something about social prescribing.
3: Yeah, so I spoke to Professor Dimity Pond, and whilst it seems to be a fairly new concept, I guess, um, in general practice, social prescribing has been around for quite some time, um, but we're going to look to see about, you know, finding some dementia-friendly activities um, that we can prescribe to our patients living with dementia.
2: Fantastic. That sounds great. And in the meantime, if you want more resources, head to our website, dta.com.au forward slash GP or follow Dementia Training Australia on Facebook or at Dementia Train AU on Twitter. Thanks for listening and see you next time.
3: If you're a person living with dementia, or if you're a family member or carer of someone living with dementia, Dementia Australia has some great resources. The National Dementia Helpline is one 100 500 or you can visit dementia.org.au.
2: Dementia in Practice is an initiative of Dementia Training Australia which is funded by the Australian Government.